You're listening to Messy Jesus Business, a podcast about radical gospel living. Hi, everyone. I'm Sister Julia Walsh, a writer, spiritual director, and jail minister living in Chicago. Welcome to The Mess. At Messy Jesus Business, we explore how the mess of radical gospel living brings disciples into a life of struggle as we advocate for social justice, live simply, serve others, practice contemplation, and live in community. And now, on to our guest. Father Daniel Haran is the Dunn Scotus Professor of Spirituality at Catholic Theological Union in Chicago, where he teaches systematic theology and spirituality. He is also a columnist for the National Catholic Reporter. He has authored more than 12 books, including Catholicity and the Emerging Priesthood, a Contemporary Theological Anthropology which received the 2020 First Place Award for Theology Book from the Association of Catholic Publishers. Among his forthcoming books, due out later in 2021, are A White Catholic's Guide to Racism and Privilege and The Way of the Franciscans, A Prayer Journey Through Lent. Father Daniel regularly lectures around the United States and abroad. He serves on a number of university, academic, and publication editorial boards, including the St. Bonaventure University Board of Trustees, the Franciscan School of Theology Board of Regents, and the Board of Directors of the International Thomas Merton Society. He is also co-host of the Francis Effect podcast. In this episode of Messy Jesus Business, Father Dan and I talk about how he came to discover his vocation as a Franciscan, how religious life and living the vow of obedience stretches us to grow and become more than we'd imagined for ourselves. We talk about what it means to live a life devoted to the Holy Spirit. We discuss the importance of encouraging one another as Christians and what Christian charity really looks like. Lastly, we reflect on relationships and what it means to be in right relationship with others. Enjoy. Hi, Father Dan Horan. Welcome to Messy Jesus Business. Hey, it's great to be with you. Thank you. Yeah, I'm so glad to have you here. And I think at one point in our parallel Franciscan vocation journeys, <laughs> I think I heard you tell me that you understand your vocation as a trilogy of sacramental ministry, public proclamation of theology and the good news, and academia scholarship. Is is am I getting that right? Is that who you are? <laughs> it's it's what I try to be at least. Yeah. 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 That's, a, that's good. Yeah. I, it, it's exactly right. You know, I mean, you're a Franciscan. I'm a Franciscan. You know, listeners may or may not be, you know, connected to Franciscans, but, you know, one of the key things of our charism is that we're with the people. And so, you know, we're, we're deeply committed to our, our faith and to the church and to the life of the church and world. But, um, you know, we also have different professions, different jobs, Francis of Assisi, Claire of Assisi, didn't specify that we needed to do X kind of ministry. So I see that threefold sort of uh, pie chart as reflective of what I strive to, to do in living out my call. Mm, yeah. And I love it. It's a beautiful framework. And I think is honoring the gifts that I know you have, like, like you have this ability to do scholarship so well, and at the same time to uh, communicate it to the common Christian, common Catholic. And so I'm interested, like, how did you discover that this was the thing for you, this threefold way of, of being in the world and being in being Dan? My life has been a bit of a, like everybody's, uh, an mm. interesting journey. I do feel certainly in retrospect that the Holy Spirit is present throughout, but you know how it is in the time of discernment, in the time of one's life at different stages, it's hard to see how does this all come together. Um, you know, I, the way I often describe my vocation to Franciscan life is by talking about discovering my vocation in reverse. 
by that, I mean, you know, most Catholics and, and most Christians more broadly will think about ministry in the church, especially ordained ministry as sort of the primary vocation. So it's true. I'm an ordained priest, a ministerial priest. And, and I feel as though that was one of the first things I discerned as a, as a young man, as a high school student, as someone in college. But it wasn't until I met the Franciscans and discovered the Franciscan tradition that I felt like my deeper fundamental foundational vocation was discovered. And it was prior to, it's, it's the foundation for everything else. So sacramental ministry as a priest, all these other things, uh, you know, uh, being a professor, being a writer, a speaker, those kinds of stuff. And, um, and so I say reverse because it's like, you know, you, you, I don't know, I shouldn't say you, I slowly discovered little pieces of this, um, mm. you know, kind of through the spirit, I think, and through others and through, you know, the way that God calls us to be in the world in ways that I don't think most of us anticipate, you know, it's, it's the spirit works through other people in such interesting ways. I've heard some of my actually Lutheran friends talk about sort of this internal call and external call, which has awakened me in my own, you know, life as, as a sister in, in this journey of like, how I have to be listening both to my heart and to God within my heart and, and, and also to the wisdom of my sisters in my community and, and even more broadly than that. And, and I think it's really the sisters in my community who have helped me to understand what my gifts are and to embrace them. So is, is, has that happened for you in, in the Franciscan community? Yeah, totally. I, when I joined the Friars, I, I did so right out of college. So I've been a Franciscan now for going on 17 years and that sounds very old. <laughs> to some of our <laughs> listeners, that may not sound old, but it just hit me all of a sudden. Um, and you you're know. younger than I am. And I've been in community, <laughs> like, uh, I think this is my 16th year in my community. Yeah. And I mean, we're both, neither of us are even 40. No, <laughs> so, no. I mean, it's amazing. It, it is. It is. I mean, and that's the funny thing too. It's all relative, isn't it? You know, right. in our respective communities, we're still sort of baby we're, religious. And yes, yet, we are. you know, we've, we've been in religious life, uh, longer than a lot of, you know, uh, you know, people who've been married and have kids have kids that are getting ready to graduate from high school. <laughs> so right. It's, it's a bit wild. Um, yeah. So I, I totally agree with that. I think, you know, when I entered the Friars, um, just before we started the podcast, we were just chatting and I mentioned in passing that when I was in college, I studied uh, not only theology, theology was my major, but I also studied journalism. Um, and I was really into photojournalism. That was my specialty and, and you know, my passion, truly. Um, I, I love theology, but not in the way that I would come to love it. And so I, this is not hyperbole. I thought my, my aspiration when joining the Friars was to be a Franciscan photographer, which is perfectly in keeping with the rule with our way of life. Hmm. Um, Francis said the brothers are to work and put only two conditions on that. You know, one is it, it shouldn't interfere with the spirit of prayer and devotion. So prayer life, community life, that comes first. Good, good advice. And the second thing is it can't be inherently sinful. So as I like to say, you can't be a Franciscan sister who's a drug dealer or a Franciscan <laughs> friar who's an assassin. You know, those, right. those kinds of things are, those are, are pretty off extreme examples, but yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it gets the point across, doesn't it? But I mean, being a Franciscan sister who's a podcaster or a writer or mm -hmm. a spiritual director, that's cool. Being mm -hmm. a, a Franciscan who's a teacher or a Franciscan who is a medical doctor or a Franciscan who's a, a lawyer or, you know, a Franciscan who sells pretzels, you know, <laughs> uh, you know, in downtown Chicago, none of that is inherently prescribed. And so I genuinely thought I would continue this because um, that was the spirit of the early Franciscan movement is that women and men came to these communities with the gifts that they had. And especially for the first order for the men's community, Francis didn't want people to kind of angle for some kind of different social status or greater education. They, he said, you know, we have been given these gifts, these trades, these skills, let's keep doing them and do it together in community for the world and for the church. And so that's what I thought. Um, how I ended up becoming a theologian and going into the academy and doing the things that I do, you know, academically and popularly, I, I think that is a lot of the affirmation or the direction or the encouragement of, of, the friars in my community and the church more broadly and society more broadly. So um, I definitely didn't imagine that I'd be doing the kind of stuff I do today and I'm grateful for it, but um, it just goes to show, you know, you never know where the spirit's going to lead. 
Yeah, yeah. I feel like I want to give a shout out to my sisters because I would not be a writer. I would not be a podcaster. I would not be a spiritual director. I would not be anything I'm doing now if it wouldn't have been for their encouragement. And um, I think back to when I was a novice and even before I professed vows and like a little in a small group of sisters, I reluctantly shared a poem that I wrote and they were like, Julia, you you got something here. Like you need to learn how to do this well, go to a writer's workshop. And it was just like, true. And then I just started like being, I was feeling so, you know, reluctant and insecure. And they just kept like, no, learn, study, grow. You can, you got this. And, and then it was like, you should start blogging. You should start publishing. Da, da, da. And I mean, I just expected I was going to, you know, maybe work in a soup kitchen, be a teacher. That was like, I didn't have big dreams. <laughs> yeah, yeah. But once we start saying yes, God starts doing wild things with our yeses, right? <laughs> it's true. It's true. Whether we like it or not, you know, yeah. that's, that's the other thing. Because some people really want to, you know, they enter religious life to be in the soup kitchen or to be in the parish yeah. or whatever. And, you know, and yeah, God's plans can be very different from our own. And, <sighs> you know, I love that, that, you know, your, your shout out to the sisters, because, you know, I think a lot, I imagine a lot of your listeners, I know a lot of people I interact with, who are vaguely familiar with religious life, you know, men's and women's religious communities, you know, they're, they're oftentimes perplexed by, especially people who are, have no familiarity, they get really interested in like the vows we take. So they're like, mm. you know, what is this chastity business? What is this poverty business? What is this obedience business? Yeah, and, and it's messy it's business. Interesting. <laughs> it is, it's messy <laughs> Jesus business, some might say. But that obedience part, I think what you just named is Truth, truthfully, what obedience looks like in its yeah. best iteration, right? That listening, your sisters were listening to the spirit working in your life. You were listening likewise to them. And that's what opens up the possibility for creativity. Um, it's not blind obedience, you know, newsflash. And if you think it is, <laughs> you know, then you have no business in religious life. It's about right. listening. <laughs> yeah. We're not here to sing marching orders. This isn't a military. Like, <laughs> we're here well, maybe to be... the Society of Jesus. Oh. <laughs> 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 right, right. Different, different deal, but we're Franciscans. So. That's right. That's right. Yeah. You know, you've mentioned the Holy Spirit already like three or four times. And I really want to, I love the Holy Spirit. I mean, I love all the persons the trinity obviously <laughs> but like <laughs> let's can we talk about the holy spirit a bit Absolutely. and you know you actually wrote somewhere i think it was in one of your columns and in, in national catholic reporter you believe that our church is suffering from holy spirit atheism which is fascinating and mind-boggling to me as a person who I try to really live my life in the spirit and it's all about the fire it's all about like what's god want now and I, I've come to know the Holy Spirit as a wild animal. What, what do you mean, though, by, by this, this atheism about the Holy Spirit? And what's the danger? Oh, I'm so glad you brought that up. I, I do, you know, I didn't even catch how often I was talking about the Holy Spirit, which I think is <laughs> reflective <laughs> of my commitment to this, this idea. I mean, one of the things I think I, I say this in that particular column, too, is that if you were to ask somebody point blank, you know, your average Christian. At, at pretty much any mainstream denomination or your, your average Catholic on a Sunday walking out of church, do you believe in the Holy Spirit? They're going to say like, of course, you know, mm -hmm. Holy Spirit, Jesus Christ, you know, God creator, et cetera, et cetera. But if you're not asked directly, the question that raises, you know, that, that has kind of surfaced for me is twofold. One is intellectually, kind of consciously, what are we thinking about when we think about God? And I think it's easy for people to think about God as creator. So God, the father, God, mother, you know, God, creator. And it's certainly easy and necessary. It would be weird to be a self-identified Christian and not think about Jesus Christ, the word incarnate, right? But truth be told, the Holy Spirit tends to fall off the radar. The Holy Spirit is the proverbial third wheel of the, uh, of the, the Holy Trinity. Oh, and yet, it's so is, sad. <laughs> I, I know. I mean, but has, has that been your experience too? I mean, yeah. You know, and, and, and so I think that like the fruits of that, what I call Holy Spirit atheism, which is a practical acting as if one doesn't believe that God as spirit draws near to all creation and animates us and guides us and is present to the church is I think reflected in a lot of the ways in which self-identified Christians, especially church leaders, act in ways that are deeply contrary to the reign of God, to the gospel message. Because my argument is if you don't, actively remind yourself that God is present, that the spirit is working in the world, then you think it's all up to you. 
And so all of a sudden the clergy sexual abuse crisis and its cover-up starts to make a little bit more sense. I mean, as, and I, don't, I don't mean make sense in, in that it's ever justifiable. It's one of the gravest evils uh, and, and, and sins that we can imagine. But if you, if you try to imagine for a second what it's like to be a bishop and you think it's all up to you that the church is going to you know, fall apart if you don't do something instead of surrendering to God's working in the Holy Spirit to get the courage, you know, those seven gifts of the Holy Spirit we talk about, you know, at confirmation time, fortitude, courage, knowledge, you know, wisdom. These are the things I think a lot of Christians frankly lack. And it's, and it's not just, I don't just mean like pietistical or like in an abstract spiritual sense. I mean, practically speaking, I think if people remembered that the Holy Spirit is, is God's self, the gift of God's self that draws near to us and all of creation at all times. It starts to change our way of thinking and being in the world. Mm, yeah, yeah. I can see how politically and in like church leadership that if one is not trusting in, in the spirit or believing in the spirit and its power, it like prohibits us from trusting in the good. And the, yeah. and the good, the good of the church are like that God's got this and, and we don't have to, but what about Can in I a person's like private life, you know, or their prayer life or in their community life? Well, that's, I, I was just going to add something to that too. Cause I, I think that's right. And, and, and maybe this ties into the personal as well, rather than just kind of like the larger meta challenges. I mean, I, I think part of it can be, you know, this lack of recognition of the Holy Spirit or what I might call belief in the Holy Spirit, practically speaking, also I think leads to a lot of fear around change or novelty or things that are unfamiliar to a lot of Christians and a lot of church leaders. I think it also prohibits the way that people are allowed to exercise the gifts of the Holy Spirit in different ministries and places in the church. So the role of the laity or the role of women and women religious in the church, you know, all of these things I think can be tied back to this Holy Spirit atheism, as I call it. And on the personal level, I, I think it, it's it's sort of like the micro version of that. If we think of it as a macro uh, challenge for the church, you know, think of it on, on the micro level. How might our lives look different if we recognize that we are not alone, that, that Jesus's promise in the gospels are true, that God sends the gift of God's self as spirit, you know, that Genesis two is true. That when we are very, well, and it's also echoed in the Psalms, of course, that our very life is made possible by the inbreathing, the indwelling of the Holy Spirit. That St. Augustine, his, that great line of his is true, that God is closer to us than we are to ourselves. Then all of a sudden, I think, you know, we have a different foundation to rest upon, a different starting point to think from. And, and how we relate to one another could be very different. Um, you know, I think about that that adage, you know, from, I, I don't even know where it goes. I, I think it emerged at least in World War One, if not long before that, which is, you know, there are no atheists in, in, in foxholes, you know, during mm -hmm. war. Mm -hmm. and, and I think about that as a teacher, you know, there are no atheists when the final exam rolls around, right? Everyone's praying, <laughs> dear God, dear God, help me out. Right. But, but what if we had that kind of more consistent praying at all times sense of our connection to God that we don't have to scurry off to a chapel or like even make the sign of the cross that that there's a way in which our whole life can become a prayer in order for that to really manifest itself we have to be aware of the fact that god is always near us god is always drawing near and that god's the one who takes the initiative right we don't have mm. pope francis says this a lot too and of course francis and claire say this a lot as well mm, yeah yeah it seems to me that being a christian disciple is really about cooperation with god's movements and, and like the following of like the summons and the invitations and the response to, to the goodness of God and the things that like God puts in our lives. If we really trusted, believed and, and had this total faith in the spirit, then, then we wouldn't take so much responsibility for, we wouldn't try to be acting like the messiahs. <laughs> like we would know yeah. God's already got this. And, and it's all about like letting each day just sort of do its thing. Oh, what does God need me to say yes to today? Yeah. Which is a very countercultural way of being because our whole world is like, our culture is all about like making of yourself and like, what is your dream? What is your plan? <laughs> That's not the way the spirit works. <laughs> yeah. I, I also think, yeah, you're so right on about that. I, I think also, you know, the spirit 
seems more abstract, even more mm. abstract than God creator, right? Because at least you have the narrative of Genesis one. And so you think of like, all right, well, God in some way is like making things or something. And, mm. and then with Jesus, you have the historical Jesus who is very clearly identifiable, but the spirit, you know, tongues of fire descending like doves like people are like are we talking about a bird here what what is the holy spirit exactly and so i think it's it's hard to literally imagine the spirit and so because the spirit can't be seen in our age like you're saying where people are so encouraged to be self-actualizing self-fulfilling um or we're we're like a very empirical society. So like everything, you know, and, and now that's even kind of blown up in, in the age of misinformation or alternative facts, quote unquote, hmm. where it's like, you need to see it to believe it. Um, but I love what you said about cooperating with God or the, the movement of the spirit in our lives, because I, I think going back to your earlier point about, you know, what does this look like individually? You know, I, I often think back to Mark's gospel, um, which is the earliest of the four. It's the shortest of the four. And anyone who's, who's had a chance to look at the ending of Mark's gospel will notice that there are these two like weird endings, the shorter and longer ending, which were both added much later, that the original kind of redacted version of Mark's gospel ends on a really disappointing and depressing note, which is the women come to the tomb, they see that it's empty, they run away, and they tell nobody out of fear. That's oh. how the gospel ends. Roll the credits. You know, it's not, <laughs> right. it's not, it's not this cheery, like, you know, ascension or anything like that. Yeah. And I often think about that with the Holy Spirit, because, you know, if we start looking at the Acts of the Apostles and the post-resurrection experience, the birth of the church, like, right, where queer Christians as such start to kind of come together, you know, fear is the thing that is is the biggest problem in my eyes fear mm -hmm. leads to demonizing fear leads to selfishness fear leads to violence and fear is the enemy of christian discipleship which is why jesus says so many times in the gospels do not be afraid do not be mm -hmm. afraid and i don't think it's an accident that it's in the context of this fear the early women and men followers of christ up in the upper room locked in there because they were afraid it's mm -hmm. in that context that God sends the gift of the Holy Spirit to the church. And so I think it is, like you said, this cooperation. It's this, you know, we have to receive it, but but God sends that to us. And, and part of the Spirit's role is to heal us from our fear. Wow. Yeah. So the fear is like a tool of the devil. I I, I sure. Yeah. I think that that certainly applies. I mean, I think it's you know, my, my only resistance around that is because it starts then to sound like fear is something that's completely external to us, right? Mm. That, you know, like we think of the devil or Satan as the great tempter. And so temptation oftentimes is presented as something outside, like I'm tempted to have this candy or I'm tempted to embezzle all this money or whatever, the, you know, tempted to run this red light or whatever it may be as something that's luring us from without. But I actually think fear that can be true right we can be um like fear can be fomented and we can talk about the devil's role in that um but i also think fear is part of what we mean when we talk about original sin it's our own you know maybe one way to think about this and i'm just kind of thinking out loud here so mm -hmm. i'm curious what your response is like if we think about the seven gifts of the holy spirit is traditionally understood as being sort of antidotes to those things that get in the way of Christian discipleship, right? Their virtues, wisdom, knowledge, fortitude, understanding, you know, awe and, and fear of the Lord, these kinds of things. What are the opposite of those things? Yeah. You know, ignorance, violence, division, prejudice, discrimination, fear, mm -hmm. all those things arise out of it. So, if the you know, in some ways, maybe the Holy Spirit is God's answer in the gift of God's very self to empower us to overcome that kind of you know, fear that arises out of our insecurity, you know, and I think a number of theologians over the centuries have talked about original sin, maybe being something more along those lines than just pride, you know, not everybody mm. experiences pride, as St. Augustine would say, but mm. he had a very limited worldview, like we all do. So mm. I don't know, I'm just thinking there, I mean, is that something that resonates with you? I mean, mm. I, I, yeah, the role of the spirit, the role of fear. Yes, I do think, right? It's a liberation from the fear when we're just, when our whole life becomes about, okay, what God is amazing and I want to please God because I love God with all that I am. So then we're not so concerned anymore with like, 
how does this look? <laughs> like, yeah. like, am, am, am I, am I pleasing people or no, I'm pleasing God and like keeping pleasing God, the priority, instead of having all these kind of like worldly fears get in the way. Yeah. So I think, I think there's something there that, that makes a lot of sense to me. What scripture is it that tells us that it's so important for us to be encouraging to one another? Is that Colossians? Oh, it's, you know, I, the one that comes to mind is Paul's letter to the Romans, Romans. build one another up, mutual love, that kind of thing. Yeah. But I yeah. think it's, it's throughout lots of those New Testament letters for sure. Right. I have been thinking lately about how that's an overlooked part of Christian discipleship is our call to be encouraging to one another. And sometimes we like just become, you know, like, like engaging in acts of business and we're not naming each other's gifts and lifting them up. And we already talked a little bit about the importance and like how we've experienced that in our own community life and our Franciscan life and how the encouragement from our brothers, our sisters has helped us to become who God's wanting, wanting us to be. But like, that's not a normal Christian habit. And so if, if, fear is is the thing that is counteracting the spirit then ultimately we all need courage and encouragement can come from community from relationship right yeah i think you're yeah you're you're spot on Ooh, i mean christianity christianity is inherently about relationship right god yes. sends you know the, the word becomes flesh and does what calls together people sends them out in, in partnerships, you know, brings the community together around the table of the Lord, around the word of the Lord, around, you know, the Beatitudes and so forth. But I think, you know, it's interesting. We were talking about, you know, Paul and, and letter to the Romans and so forth. And, and what you're describing right now too, also reminds me of the opening chapters of the first letter to Corinthians, where Paul makes this very clear distinction that has always made sense to me. And, and maybe it's because you and I come from a tradition that is founded by a guy who used to refer to himself as God's fool, right? That the, there's a difference <laughs> right. between the, the wisdom of God and the wisdom of the world. And, and Paul, you know, has that great line about the foolishness of God, right? Mm. What, what God's wisdom is seems like silliness, foolishness, um, ineptitude, what have you according to the vision of the world, the logic or wisdom of the world. And I think, you know, the world says that, you know, life, happiness, success, finance, whatever it may be, is a zero-sum game. And so everyone has to cover their own back. And even, you know, and I, this is something that I think is, is always in need of being kind of remembered for Christians today, which is that too many of us, especially in the global North, especially in contexts like the United States, we're too comfortable <laughs> with the false alliance oh. between our social context and Christianity yes. and forget that Paul is telling us, no, 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 no. Yeah. This wisdom or logic of the world is not actually what Christianity is all about. You know, and so like what you're talking about with this building one another up, as Paul says, or this encouragement that is so often lacking even among Christians well, that's because it seems silly to the to like the status of the world, right? The lens of the world. It's like, no, 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 you need, you know, it's it's like, you're, I think about like on air, airplanes, you know, and this mm. is, I'm not trying to dis dissuade people from following FAA instructions and the flight attendants. <laughs> let's be clear. In, Everyone let's be, be safe. Clear. Yeah, it's a metaphor. <laughs> it's a metaphor. But, you know, they, they, they make clear in the instructions, if you lose cabin pressure, put your mask on first before helping others. Well, that's so you don't pass out, right? Because if mm. two people pass out, that's not that's no good. Mm -hmm. But I think people extend that metaphor in the wisdom of the world, which is like yeah. cover your own rear first, you know? Ugh. You know, even charity is seen as something for people who have been successful, whatever that means, instead of something inherent to what it means to be a Christian, which is to be in relationship and support other people. Yeah. Last, I think it was just last week on my, on my blog, I, on Messy Jesus Business, <laughs> for any listener who hasn't actually read the blog, I wrote a poem, The Struggle of Loving, and there's a stanza in there, something like, I'm not sure what love really is. Sometimes I think it is relational sacrifice, but perhaps it is simply attention. And mm. I just, I've been thinking about that, like when it comes to being a Christian and living out our, our virtue of charity what we need to do is just respond to give attention, to give energy. It's definitely not about writing a check. <laughs> like, I mean, although that's valuable and necessary and need all the things, it has to take something of us for it to truly be love. And, and sometimes it's a sacrifice, but sometimes it can be completely a joyful moment of attention. 
Yeah, that's right. Yeah. I, I think we see that in the gospels and elsewhere, like even in you know, that famous reading that is, you know, 90% of couples pick for the second reading oh. of their wedding, you know, <laughs> love is patient, love is kind from first Corinthians. Yeah. I mean, it's they beautiful. think this is like this romantic thing. It is a beautiful, it's a beautiful passage, but the love there is agape. It's this, this yeah. Christian love, this self-offering love you're talking about. And, you know, I love all those descriptors because basically that's what Paul's doing. He's like, let me tell you about what this love looks like. It's not yeah. Eros. It's not romance. It's, right. it's about, you know, that comes, you can't control that. That comes from without. That's, that's mm -hmm. a gift. It's a grace, but, but agapic love is a love we have to choose. It's the reason why Jesus is like, uh, by the way, are you sure you can drink from the cup that I'm drinking from? It's like, yeah. by the way, pick up your cross and follow me. And it's why Peter says in chapter eight of Mark's gospel, it's like, no, 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 no. We don't have to go to Jerusalem. You're the Christ. No, no, no. You're right. wrong, Lord. And Jesus is like, oh, idiots. <laughs> still figured it out. That's my translation from the Greek. Yeah. <laughs> Jesus calls Peter an idiot. <laughs> oh, goodness. You know, I want to go back to relationship, um, which as Franciscans, this is like key to our life. I, when I was teaching high school, I used to always tell my students, like, I got it. I know what the meaning of life is. You all want to hear it. Like, get ready, write this down. And then, and, and, you know, whatever. I did my dramatic thing and, and they, half of them cared. And then they would write, I'd just be like, okay, write down relationship. Like, and then I would break it down. Like the meaning of life is relationship with God with others and with ourselves, And if we always keep in mind that it's all about relationship, then that, and keep relationship our priority, then we were like, we are, have our attention in the right, right area, which, you know, obviously connects to love and charity and, and how it's not just a fluffy, nice thing. <laughs> Right? No. And living in the spirit is not comfortable. <laughs> like This is a constant challenge. Anyway, right relationship is a phrase that's used, um, you know, off and on here and there throughout the church and in the Franciscan culture in particular. So like, what is right relationship for you? What, what does that mean? And, and like, how can we all be working for it? Yeah, it's a really great, that's a, that's an awesome question because you're right. We sometimes in the church, we throw around these phrases, right? These terms. And it's like, what does this mean? You know, there, I'm thinking of two things, you know, one is, and I apologize, slight little professor hat on for a brief second about the, the, four, the fourth century, which is, you know, Augustine had this distinction in Latin between uti and frui, which is use and enjoyment. And he talked hmm. about right relationship being relating to things and people and God in categories that are most appropriate to those things in relationship or persons in relationship. And therefore, if we treat, you know, objects with frui, as he would say in Latin, with, you know, for enjoying them for their own sake, then it's idolatry, right? We're, we're, we're treating this, you know, it should be a means to a greater love or a greater relationship. And, and conversely, if we only treat other people or treat God in this uti, that's where we get from the Latin utilitarian, right? Like, a, mm. like a utility that we use people or God, then we're, we're reducing them. You know, it's sacrilege, it's, it's blasphemy, mm. um, it's sin. And so, you know, that kind of category I think is actually pretty useful. So it sounds arcane. So I apologize for that, but if we bring no, it. It's to, fascinating. <laughs> yeah. If we think about it, like, what is that? Okay. All right. That's great, Dan, all this Latin, whatever. What do we do in 2021? And I think really, and this is something moral theologians talk about a lot more, but I, but I think for all of us, it's really a beautiful and inclusive way of thinking about right relationship, which is whatever we need to do in that spirit of encouragement you were talking about earlier to promote human flourishing. Yeah. You know, right relationship is, you know, if we think about it in its converse, you know, wrong relationship, destructive relationship violent relationships, abusive relationships, these prevent, they destroy, they inhibit human flourishing, right? People can't be who it is God has created them to be. And I can think of, you know, so many ways in which that happens in our society and in our communities, but it happens in our church. I'll just be frank about it. You know, um, I, I'm constantly struggling with um, making sense of how self-identified Christians and especially church leaders are so quick to interfere with the full human flourishing of so many of our siblings, so many of our sisters and brothers. And, and we, we all are at various times complicit in that too. So it's not, I'm not trying to just blame others. Um, but that's what I would say. I mean, I, I, the right relationship, you're right. We can toss it around like it's easy, like it's understood, mm -hmm. but 
but to your point about like the agopic love earlier, you know, it demands something of us. Um, mm. If I can just say, say one more thing, you know, I, something that kind of really opened my mind a long time ago when I was first starting my master's programs in Washington, D.C., I had a professor of liturgy who was talking about, in Latin, the word is sacrificium, this idea of sacrifice that's like all throughout the Catholic liturgy, right? It's just, it's a, it's a remnant of, of Trent and all this kind of stuff. And she said, you know, really, when we think about how it's used in the life of Christ, sacrifice makes it sound like, you know, like the, like, burnt offerings or something like you kill a lamb to offer yeah. something else to God. The old Testament. And yeah. And I don't want to make too much of a distinction between like old and new Testament because oh, okay. that, that could be complex too. But I'm just thinking about like sacrifice and the way we popularly think about it is, is, is in, involves suffering and involves something out of our control. It involves, you know, you know, it's not our own will. And she said, but in the, what, what Jesus does in some way is model for us a self offering and if we if we take because like think about something that neither of us know much about as religious but if we think about our friends who are parents there there there's constant sacrifice in raising children right sacrifice of sleep sacrifice of time definitely sacrifice of money and energy mm -hmm. right but if we think about it as sacrifice it becomes negative in the popular sense but if we think about it as that agopic love then the sacrifice is actually their self-offering. And how they reframe that is, I am giving myself to you. And isn't yeah. that what relationship, right relationship is about? Yeah, 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 right. It's not about um, the elevation or the accomplishment or the ego. It's really all about the other. And which to me makes so much sense because that's what Christ modeled for us in the, the, all the gospels. I'm fascinated though, that you're talking about human flourishing, because when I think about right relationship, <laughs> I'm thinking about creation yeah, and, yeah. and stewardship. And like we as humanity are not in right relationship with earth at this time. And, and it's a horror. So are, are you, are you not talking about the earth here? What's going on? <laughs> I'm always talking about the earth. Okay. Um, yeah, I thought we were speaking specifically about the human family because last time I checked, and I'm open to correction on this, I have not met the you know Chicago Archdiocese of Squirrel Catholics, but I think <laughs> I think such a thing is possible, and that's all joking aside, which is. <laughs> You know, the ones scripture. in my backyard seem to be doing something. They're doing know. something. Yeah. You know, <laughs> they're observing the Sabbath, you know. Right. But, but I mean, Francis says this, Francis, St. Francis of Assisi in the Candle of the Creatures, all of creation gives praise to God by being what it is God created to be. It's, it's as, as he says in the opening stanza, we human beings are not worthy to utter God's name because we try to be something other than what God has created us to be. Mm. So, no, I totally agree. I, I think, you know, human flourishing is, again, that's that moral language that gets used oftentimes in the church about human right relationship. Mm -hmm. But I completely agree with you. So thank you for the setup, which is it's really about the flourishing of God's family of creation. Yeah. It gets complicated. And I acknowledge this. I mean, I'm, I'm kind of in some circles, like an uber Franciscan, a radical around some of these ideas, because I, I do truly believe that non-human creatures also exercise a, a kind of you know, agency, they, they are meaning makers, they, they have a life that's more than just kind of fleshy robotics, as the, you know, 16th century philosophers used to say, B, I think there's moral reasoning. And we see that actually, in, in some of our scriptural examples, we see that also in the Franciscan tradition and other sources that Whew, I know, need some footnotes, you send those yeah. later. <laughs> chapter eight, for, for our listeners too. chapter eight of Bonaventure's life of St. Francis is oh. all about non-human animal agency and right relationship with all of creation. In fact, Bonaventure uses this phrase, pietas, piety, and, mm. and it comes from this like Roman kind of civil virtue. A pious person is not somebody who like prays the rosary every day or goes to daily mass. Like we would use it like, oh, this pious lady or something like that. Mm -hmm. They mean it, Bonaventure means it as the one who takes care of their family members. So mm. a pious parent takes care of children, pious children take care of their aging parents and vice versa. And so he says, Francis of Assisi is the kind of emblematic or the model of piety. And even non-human creatures showed piety in return. So there's some really cool stories yeah. in there. Uh, so chapter eight, check it out. Yeah, um, yeah. Devotion. Yeah. yeah. 
It's devotion. Yeah. Yeah. I want to circle back to something you were saying way earlier on in this conversation. You know, when we were talking about the Holy Spirit and then, and then you mentioned idolatry for a little bit and it got, it's, it kind of reminded me of one of my convictions that if we really believed and trusted in the Holy Spirit, then we would not make our traditions into idols, Mm. which I think is part of the problem. (laughs) Yeah. <laughs> with yep. like the situation we're in. I mean, I think about nationalism. I also think about our church, which we love yeah. so much and want the best for. But because we get so stuck on like, well, this is the way it's been. This is the way it's supposed to be. We're not allowing the spirit to come in and truly make new things, which is like what the spirit's messy business is. Yeah. I love the brand. <laughs> <laughs> You're welcome. I, I just can't help it. Yeah, that's great. <laughs> Yeah, I, I, I totally agree. I totally agree. I mean, I think you're exactly right when you say that we turn traditions or practices into idols. Um, it's also curious to me, as, as somebody who cares a lot about history and the study of history, mm-hmm. when and why some of these things get concretized. Right, me too. Yeah, so it's like, you're like why does anyone think that in 1274, when Thomas Aquinas and St. Bonaventure die, that they had all the answers 800 years later when we've learned so much about the universe and science and history and philosophy and so forth. And, and I think that goes back to that, what you were saying, you know, and what we were talking about earlier about Holy Spirit atheism. If, if we believe it's all up to us, then we think we have to have static, clear, concrete answers. Right. But God is constantly, you know, the, the, the fancy language we use is God continually creates, or in Latin, creatio continua. And that's the work of the Holy Spirit, that there's newness. There's, there's evolution, you know, in, in all senses, biological and intellectual and spiritual. And, you know, it goes back to that fear question again. Like, yeah. what are we afraid of, you know, what clinging we... on to these things? Yeah. Why are we so afraid? Because yeah. <laughs> it can be scary. You know? yeah. <laughs> Especially if you don't believe that God is there with you, you know, yeah. then, it's, then we're on, we're all alone against, you know, the world. Mm-hmm. And that's the narrative I think so many people live with, right? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. We've talked a bit about discipleship during this chat, and I'm wondering if you want to add any more or say say something about what discipleship means for you. Yeah, that's such a great question. You know, several years ago, I was, I was giving a talk at a very progressive Episcopalian um, parish on the West Coast, like super, super awesome, very active uh, parish. And one of the uh, staff members there, you know, in advance, we were trying to come up with a theme of the talk I was going to give. And, and I had included discipleship in there. And she said to me, she's like, well, you know, a lot of people don't like that term. It seems very stuffy and staid and this huh. kind of stuff. And, and I had never really thought about it. And, and I, and I took it under consideration because I thought, oh, you know, I'm a churchy guy. I'm a Franciscan friar for heaven's sake. Like maybe I just take it for granted. Right. But I think it's like the right relationship conversation we had a minute ago that discipleship sometimes means everything and means nothing to people. And it's given me an occasion to think about this a bit. The word itself has to do with really being a student. Mm. You know, the, the, I'll spare everyone the Latin, but the etymology of discipleship is about being a student. And the question is, you know, you're a student in a school of something. The question is who, in what school are we enrolled and who is our teacher? And a disciple of Christ, which is what we all claim to be by virtue of baptism, means we're students of Christ. We're students of the kingdom of God. The school we're enrolled in is Christianity. And discipleship to me means this ongoing experience of conversion to become, you know, better and better students. I mean, that's convenient coming from a teacher, but, uh, and you're a teacher too. So that's yeah. maybe it's a, it's a little uh, off-putting to some people, but let's really think about that for a minute. It doesn't have to be in a traditional school setting. Right. Think about, you know, art or thing. You know, I think about the the school of Rembrandt, right? These, these people who studied under these great master teachers. And, and is that not the language that the women and men who follow Jesus in his earthly ministry use, you know, teacher, Rabboni, right? This idea mm. of, of, you know, master is a problematic, title for sure. But teacher is really, I I like that. So for me, discipleship is about recognizing that we're always learning, that we always have more to learn, that we have more to grow into, that we're not the ones with all the answers. Um, And as Jesus made clear in his earthly ministry, not even he had all the answers sometimes, Mm. you know, 
and and to be open to that trust, right? Um, that that trust in the spirit that God is continually drawing near, so that it's not all up to us. Um, mm-hmm. And if we recognize ourselves in baptism as enrolled in the school of the kingdom of God, then again, I think that really changes our way of seeing what our faith is all about and what it means to be in the world. Mm. I'll have to have you back so we can break open kingdom of God, because that is also very churchy language yes. <laughs> that we like use, like no problem. But I have been reminded by some of, you know, my secular friends, like that's weird words. It is. And so anyway, <laughs> I agree. <laughs> it's so true. You know, it's, 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 yeah, very hierarchical and very monarchical. It's like, yeah, yeah, yeah. Good, you know, yeah. yeah. Um, so, so Dan, what's messy about all this for you? (laughs) All of it. (laughs) (laughs) That's what everyone always says. (laughs) I'm a big fan of the singer songwriter, Jason Mraz. So here's a, I I don't know if your listeners or anyone who's known anything about me before will know this. Um, I think I've seen him now 14 times in concert over the years. Uh, and I'm proud to say that I was a fan of his when he was still doing acoustic sets in California long before he had his, you know, charts whatever the hits or whatever mm-hmm. but but there's a song from an album that came out oh gosh right or, i'm going to say around 2010 so maybe 2009 2012 something like that and there's a song titled beautiful mess and when al gore won the nobel prize shared the nobel prize for his work in climate change he, he the nobel committee invited jason mraz to sing or to, to perform this song with um, the nobel orchestra and so if anyone wants to look at, uh, hear this song, I encourage you to go on YouTube and look this up. Beautiful mess, Jason Mraz. But to me, that is one of the most beautiful and accurate depictions of human personhood or theological anthropology. And I love it because we are, we are messy in every truest sense. If we go back to our kind of origins, at least according to Genesis 2, we are made ha'adama in Hebrew, from the dust of the earth. We are earthlings. We are muddy, dirty, dusty, messy people. And that song of Meraz's, you know, I don't think it's, it's not intended to be Christian. It's not a Christian song as such, but it's very compatible and relatable to those of us who strive to be students of Christ, disciples. Um, the, The song talks about how we are just trying and we fail and it's, and it's, we pick back up and the beauty is actually in our messiness and the striving. And I think that is where it's messy. It's, it is all messy. And I'm glad to hear your other guests agree. <laughs> and, and remembering that might be a big clue to that right relationship you were talking about earlier, because it gives us patience for ourselves and with others when we recognize that and recognize that actually trying to grasp after perfection or stasis or you know, some sort of concrete, you know, inner reality is, is impossible. You mm. Know? Mm. Yeah. Amen. Amen. <laughs> <laughs> we are all works in progress and that is okay. I think yeah. Desmond Tutu said that. <laughs> Yeah, and I think right of that on. all the time, and 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 in in our life together as as Christian community, we get to constantly be reminded for our need, personal need for humility, and our need for one another. So absolutely, thank, glad to be in in all this mess with you, Dan. Thanks for coming <laughs> on the show. What uh, what would you like our listeners to know about you and your work, and how they can follow it and support you? Oh goodness. Um... Sure. If if you're not tired of hearing me now, uh, after <laughs> after this, come on, they're gonna be so fascinated. They're like, give me more Latin, <laughs> give me more Hebrew. <laughs> um, yeah, I've written a couple books. Uh, you can a go to a couple. Jam- <laughs> like you're prolific. Give me a break. How do you do it? <laughs> <laughs> I guess I don't know. It seems so cliche to say. You know, you can go to the website danharan.com and or Google me, and you can find some things there. Right. Um, I also co-host a podcast with two other awesome people, David Dalt and Heidi Schlumpf um, from National Catholic Reporter. Uh, that's called The Francis Effect. So if you're listening to this podcast, you know how to get them. Check out Francis Effect too. Yeah. Um, yeah. And uh, I'm on all the social medias, you know, uh, with with a very ambivalent relationship to it. I think like, <laughs> like all people should, you know, sometimes I just want to leave it all, but yeah. other times it's a great means of connecting with folks. So yeah. Yeah. Well, thank you so much for coming on. Great to have you. It's my pleasure. Thank you, Julia. And uh, thanks for all the great work you're doing. Keep it up. Thanks. Thanks.
invite you to join me in this contemplative moment. Father Dan and I discuss the importance of Christians encouraging one another. With this in mind, I'd like to offer you a passage from Scripture that emphasizes the importance of this part of our tradition. If you can, I invite you to close your eyes and breathe deeply as you listen and pray. Notice if certain words or phrases stick out for you from the passage. Is there a particular message that God wants you to hear today? A reading from the first letter to the Thessalonians, chapter 5, verses 11 through 23. Therefore, encourage one another and build one another up, just as you are doing. But we beseech you, brethren, to respect those who labor among you and are over you in the Lord and admonish you, and to esteem them very highly in love because of their work. Be at peace among yourselves. And we exhort you, brethren, admonish the idlers, encourage the faint-hearted, help the weak, be patient with them all. See that none of you repays evil for evil, but always seek to do good for one another and to all. Rejoice always. Pray constantly. Give thanks in all circumstances, for this is the will of God in Christ Jesus for you. Do not quench the spirit. Do not despise prophesying. But test everything. Hold fast what is good. Abstain from every form of evil. May the God of peace himself sanctify you wholly, and may your spirit and soul and body be kept sound and blameless at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. He who calls you is faithful, and he will do it. That's it for this episode of Messy Jesus Business. Thanks for listening. Messy Jesus Business is produced and hosted by me, Sister Julia Walsh, and edited by Cherish Bedzinski. You can find us online at MessyJesusBusiness.com and on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, and Patreon. If you like what you heard, please be sure to mention our podcast to your friends and followers. And we'd love to have your support via Patreon. From the bottom of our hearts and the middle of the mess, thank you. Messy Jesus Business is produced in partnership with the Franciscan Sisters of Perpetual Adoration. You can learn more about our religious community and donate to our mission at www.fspa.org. I'm Sister Julia Walsh, and I'll catch up with you next time. Until then, peace and all good.